Are you an accredited investor looking for a new opportunity to generate passive income and build the retirement of your dreams? Then elevate your investment game with Viking Capital, where wealth meets wisdom. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting out, Viking Capital can help guide you towards financial freedom through passive real estate investing. With strong and transparent underwriting, Viking identifies low-risk opportunities with the goal of preserving investor capital and maximizing long-term growth potential. And their accessible and responsive investor relations team will help you understand how each investment will impact your unique financial goals. With $800 million in assets acquired, more than $230 million in equity raised, and more than 5,000 units under management, Viking Capital is your path to early retirement. To learn about Viking Capital's latest investment opportunity, which is available for you right now, visit go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best. That's go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best to get started today. Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, Promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Whereas a multifamily, the trends behind multifamily investments are all with you. So over time, there's good years and there's bad years, but multifamily, if you hold it long enough, you're going to make money. It's going to be an appreciable asset. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Best ever listeners, how are you doing? Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily Real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any fluffy stuff with us today, Bobby Larson. How you doing, Bobby? I'm doing great, Joe. Thanks for having me on your show. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And it's my pleasure. A little bit about Bobby. He's a founder and principal of Bannamore Investments, which invests in multifamily throughout the United States through syndications and joint ventures with high net worth individuals, family offices, and institutional investors. His portfolio consists of, as a general partner, 400 units across seven properties. And as a limited partner, he's in 34 properties based in San Diego, California. So with that being said, Bobby, you want to get the best of our listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Yeah, absolutely. So that was a great summary. Just going beyond that a little bit, I've spent virtually my entire career in real estate. I come from a family of two real estate brokers. 
I got my broker's license while I was an undergraduate and worked in the sales part of the residential industry through undergraduate. Once I graduated, it wasn't really what I wanted to do, but I thought I had some skills already in that industry. So I wanted to go to the investment world. So I started off in a broader spectrum of office, retail, and multifamily investments for a large asset manager based out of Newport Beach. And fast forward 12 years later, after acquiring about 15,000 units throughout my career, I started Vanamore. And we basically, as you said, focus on both syndication and joint venture of existing multifamily properties. So let's talk about this. You were an asset manager for office and retail, correct? Yeah, right out of undergrad a number of years ago, but I, I used to work at a company called PIMCO, pretty well known across fixed income sure. equities, as well as alternative investments, which is where I focused for them. And uh, given the size of the company and the amount of equity they were trying to place, they had a, a focus across all asset classes. Okay, across all asset classes. So you were doing asset management for multifamily in addition to office and retail? Correct. What percent would you say were you focused on? And I heard you, you said this is a while ago. So with that being said, what percent were you allocated, would you say, of your focus on the different property types? It was probably about 25% was focused on multifamily, 50% was office, and then the remainder 25 is really spread across retail, hospitality, various industrial and unique asset classes. About how long did you work there with this percent allocation? I was there for four years. Four years. Okay. And then after four years, you ventured out on your own and started your own business? You created Panamore? Or is there something between? Not quite. It was a long process. All what I had in mind was I wanted to start with the biggest companies possible, use their resources and educational tools to really learn the industries. And I went smaller and smaller. So from PIMCO, I went to graduate school. I went out to Duke University for a couple of years, but after that, I landed in San Diego, where I am today, working for another sponsor that's based here in San Diego, albeit when I joined them. This was 2014, when I joined them. They were managing about 8,000 units. They were also raising from what they called friends and family in the syndication network. And then across the six years that I was with them, we acquired 15,000 units. I grew their portfolio from about $800 million to about $6 billion over that time. And they also just focused exclusively on multifamily. Okay. And then after that, is that when you started Panamore Investments? After that is when I felt comfortable enough. I knew multifamily was the focus that I wanted to be in. And I spun off completely full-time and started Panamore. Four years as an asset manager and 50% of the focus approximately was office. Then you went to grad school. And then after grad school, you worked for a sponsor that was focused, sounds like exclusively on multifamily, correct? Correct. After coming from PIMCO, I knew multifamily was the focus I wanted to have. And why is that? Why not office? Because that's where 50% of your focus was for four years. You knew it well. So what about that? Great question. And this is probably one of the most common conversations I have with other people in the industry, as well as our investors. And when I step back, A, I like real estate across the board because typically it's a long-term attractive investment asset class. What I like specifically about multifamily versus your offices, your retails out there is that the secular trends, the secular meaning the long-term trends of what is the tailwinds that are driving behind that asset class. 
in office, you're battling different secular trends that are against you, especially now with work from home. But before that, even office space per employee, that square footage space was coming down, it was getting smaller. And then whereas in multifamily, the trends behind multifamily investments are all with you. So over time, there's good years and there's bad years, but in multifamily, if you hold it long enough, you're going to make money. It's going to be an appreciable asset. Have you looked at the trends for office space per employee? Because I would guess after COVID, it's not decreasing anymore. It's increasing, but that's just me guessing. Yeah. The short-term trend of where the space per employee is, is certainly increasing from 2020 levels, but it's down considerably from 2019 levels. I think most surveys you see from employees, obviously this is probably no surprise, but most employees, I think it's something about 70%, wish they had full-time work from home. And I think even on the corporate level, the chief executives within companies are planning some combination of the two, the work from home, partially in the office. So those two trends, while they're rebounding from 2020 levels going forward, I think we have adjusted to a new norm. Mm-hmm. What about retail? And I know you've been focused on multifamily for a while, <laughs> but I would like to get your thoughts on retail because there's always going to be places like nail salons where People go get pedicures and manicures and haircuts, which I need one. There's always places where you have to go into and physically be present. So there's always going to be demand for retail, right? Or not? I think there will be. Maybe I'm historic in this, but sometimes I prefer just to go to a store, find the physical item that I'm looking for and purchase it. It's not always easy to find stuff online. So I think because of that, we're never going to go away completely with brick and mortar. Even with the new apps they have out there with clothes, you can match your size perfectly with an app that scans your body and everything like that nowadays. So there's still desire to actually be in a store, feel what you're purchasing and actually purchasing the item. So I think long-term again, it ebbs and flows. Sometimes the perspective is that brick and mortar is going to go away completely. And that's just not the case. I do think it'll be a headwind going forward, but we'll have malls for decades to come, if not forever. Okay. So why not focus on retail? Because like I said, there's an ebb and flow to it. So it depends on the other side of the equation. So you have supply and demand, it's the demand side of it. So it depends when you're making the theory that the property that you're buying is going to be one of those properties that will last the test of time. You're betting on that specific property, which in every asset class, there is a component of that. But in multifamily, the saying is that rising tides lift all ships. And the secular trend, that's the rising tide. And retail doesn't have that rising tide. So you can make a good bet that that particular mall or store that you're buying will do well. And it may, but it also may not. So mm-hmm. you don't have the same rising tide effect. Out of college, I assume you got your undergrad because you went to grad school, correct? Correct. Okay. Out of college, you did what? Was PIMCO the first place you worked at? It was. Okay. So out of college, you went to PIMCO, worked there for four years, then went to grad school. Then after that, you worked somewhere else for six years. I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. And what I'm asking is not necessarily if you could go back, would you change it? Because that's a ridiculous question because everyone always says, well, I wouldn't change anything because I wouldn't be where I'm at today if this didn't happen. So I'm not going to ask that. But I'm going to ask that for other people in a similar position, if they get their undergrad, 
And then they work for a company doing asset management, learning different property types and how to manage them for about four years. What would be a better use of their time? Going to grad school or working for another company for a year or two instead of grad school related to the business? What are your thoughts there? Excellent question. And it's a complicated one, to be honest, because I guess it's not the best response, but the response I would give you is it depends. Mm-hmm. Grad school, when I look at it, is it's what you make of it. Namely, it's the networking that comes out of it. Yes, you do hone your skills and you learn a lot educationally, but the main benefit coming out of grad school is the network of your other classmates. It's your teachers. It's the assignments that you're working on there. So it's what you use in that network can really propel your career. The same could be said for another position too, though. So I guess long story short, it depends. And my one bit of advice that I would give anyone, whether they're just new to the industry or coming out of undergraduate, is never stop networking. Expand your network, whether you're working for someone else or doing your own operation, continue to network and never let that slow you down. Let's talk about your LP investments first. You're a limited partner in 34 properties. Does that mean it's 34 separate investments or are you invested in portfolios? And so it's less than 34 separate investments. 34 separate properties. So I actually haven't invested in a fund before. So these are individual properties that were purchased. Got it. So you're a limited partner on 34 separate investments. How many operators are you invested with approximately? Three operators. The high number, the reason for that is that I had a, a GP position in my last position I held as an acquisition director for the other sponsors. So that GP position is rolling forward into other properties that they continue to acquire as well as some of the properties that I acquired for them. I'm just talking LP positions right now. So not to complicate it too further, essentially working there, part of the mm-hmm. composition structure was a percentage interest in the general partnership. Okay. So most people think when they think general partnership is that they have a controlling share of that property. These are percentage interest in the GP interest without the controlling share. So it's essentially what I still refer to as LP position. Got it. Okay. So you have GP interest, but you're not calling the shots. So you're passive and with that GP interest, so you're categorizing that as limited partnership interest. Yeah. Okay. And even when those properties are sold, that GP interest is then converted into LP interest in the up leg that's identified. Awesome. Okay. So of the 34 investments, how many are with that group versus groups outside of that one? Off the top of my head, I think it's about 22. 22. Okay. 20. So you're with two other groups outside of the one that you worked at for six years. How did you identify those two other groups as groups you wanted to invest with? Good question. They're both with groups that I was very familiar with, groups that I, quote unquote, were competing with in that other position. I guess there's not really direct competition in the space, but they're groups that were buying similar assets of what I was acquiring through Mm -hmm. colleagues that I networked with and met through my time in the industry as well, which that's always my number one recommendation for anyone else considering an investment in the space is just being comfortable with the sponsor, having trust in the sponsor, understanding who the sponsor is, and that you can rely on them. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. When it comes to scaling your real estate business, is lack of capital holding you back? 
Raising private capital on demand can be a major challenge, but you can get the knowledge and tools you need to succeed when you attend Dana Cornell's three-hour Raise Capital Masterclass Live. After starting out with no capital or relationships, Dana has raised over $2 billion, that's with a B, billion dollars twice in the last 20 years, and he has made it his mission to share the best of what he's learned with business owners and real estate investors like you. You can learn more at DanaCornell.com forward slash best ever. Dana's Raise Capital Masterclass allows you to immediately unlock and raise capital on demand, drastically increasing your business's growth. If you're ready to take your business to the next level, go to DanaCornell.com forward slash best ever and enroll today. And right now, best ever listeners, you can enroll for over $500 off. Go to DanaCornell.com forward slash best ever. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at PassiveInvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. PassiveInvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. How did you gain that level of comfort competing with them if you weren't seeing behind the curtain on how well they're operating? What data points or proof points did you acquire to gain that level of comfortable well the reason i said quote unquote competition is because in one scenario they're competition in another scenario they're the seller of a property that you're buying so you keep a friendly relationship with them and, and when they're selling a property you can also get deep insight into how they operate that property that you're looking to buy you see their management style you see the good aspects and the bad aspects so I, I think that's probably the number one driver behind it and then beyond that it's really just the personal relationship that i had with the key decision makers in that gp so for the other two groups that you're a limited partner with, both those groups would be categorized into this bucket where you're familiar with them, you were competing with them and perhaps buying properties from them with your other role, correct? Correct. When you look at the operators prior to investing with them as a limited partner, what are some things that you want to make sure are in place before investing with them? Good question. I'll approach this assuming that I don't have personal relationships with any of the operators. So if I was looking at a new operator and a new investment opportunity, some of the things that I would really focus on is A, do they have skin in the game as well? Which is basically, are they making an investment in this property? And, and is that investment in addition to what they are earning through acquisition fees or other fees that they're collecting for making the investment? B, do they have experience in this type of property and not just multifamily? Is it workforce housing? Is it a lease of strategy for new construction or is it development? These are all very specific subcategories within the asset class. So you want to make sure that they have experience. And, and that's not just experience within their own general partnership that properties that they own. It could be like myself, for instance, where they've been in the industry for 15 years. They know what they're doing and they're building a portfolio themselves. 
And then the third aspect, I just want to make sure that my investment strategy is aligned with their investment strategy. Am I looking for cash flow? Am I looking for total property appreciation? And what's the hold period? Do I want to have an investment for seven to 10 years where I'm getting some modest appreciation as well as some strong cash flow? Those are all important dynamics. I think that's the three most that I would look at. That makes sense. And I just want to ask what I didn't hear. I wonder why. And no right answer, obviously. It's however we individuals choose to make this decision. What I didn't hear would be waterfall structure or preferred return, like the deal mechanics. Would that be after these three? Clearly a consideration, but these three are, in your opinion, more important than that? I wouldn't say more important because I could probably rattle off 10 to 15 different (laughs) categories of what I think are extremely important. And that's where I would put waterfall structures to be. Now, I think that kind of falls into the trust category that I started off with, that I think Mm -hmm. you need to have really strong trust with the sponsors you're going into. And with that in mind, it's a group that I trust. I perhaps wouldn't even ask about the waterfall structure going into it because For the most part, there's different structures, but they all have kind of a market norm of what is sensible waterfall structure. Only a group that I wouldn't put in that trust category would throw out some abnormal, not market terms in front of me or some hidden fees that I wouldn't expect. I'm going to turn the tables now. And now from your general partner perspective, when a limited partner is speaking to you and it's a first conversation you've had with him or her, and they don't know you, but they saw your logo in this interview that's taking place right now, and they reached out to you. How do you establish that trust so that they can then invest with you? Great question. I think track record and experience goes a long way in that process. Something I like to highlight is that not just Vandemore's GP portfolio, but as well as just experience throughout my 15 years, there hasn't been a single property that I have been a part of through the acquisition or the asset management that has ever lost money. And that encompasses the financial crisis. So that says a lot. Now, I wouldn't even say that that is something that would strike out another sponsor, because if I was an investor looking to have the highest and greatest annual returns possible over a short period of time, it's inevitable that the sponsors that I'm talking to have probably lost some money. But it goes into, again, the aspect of having the general partner's investment strategy aligned with what the LP's investment strategy is. And once the same LP, GP investment strategy is aligned, it becomes a lot easier and and the trust is there to expect And it's not something that happens overnight. Typically, we have these conversations with an LP, and it could take easily a year or more of going through deals, spending the time, walking them through how we're looking at each deal before they get comfortable to actually pull the trigger and make an investment. Do you have a certain process internally to keep investors in the loop on what you're doing? And if so, can you talk to us about that marketing process or that ongoing communication process that you have in place? Yeah, good question. Across all of our properties, we have two main avenues of communication that we do. Both are on a quarterly basis, but each property receives a quarterly update that talks about the operations, the vacancy, the rent growth, 
as well as capital items that we're doing to improve the property from a value add perspective. And there's a write-up for each specific property that an investor is in that they receive every quarter, as well as there's a market update that we provide every quarter and on an annual basis going forward to provide our high-level sense of where the market is today and where we think it's going. And then above that, we always make ourselves available. So if an investor, regardless of the size of that investor, wants to call and talk about one of their existing investments or just the market in general, we're available to make those calls. So that is on at least the first part was regarding existing investors. But what about the investors who have invested with you, but they're still on your email list? Do you have a process for keeping them in the loop or do they also get these property updates, which I don't think they do, but do they also get these property updates and that's how you're educating them? Yeah, they don't receive the property updates because there's some confidential information in there, but they do receive the market updates. I myself personally try to be very active on social media, specifically LinkedIn. I think it's an amazing tool for the multifamily and real estate industry in general. And a number of them fit into that category where I probably talk to them, the non-LPs, but the prospective LP investors on a monthly or at least quarterly basis. And we talk about the deals we're seeing and we talk about the market and we just have follow-up phone calls pretty routinely. You mentioned earlier, no property that you've been a part of has ever lost money. That includes a financial crisis. Why do investors lose money in multifamily? I would say 90% of it. So excluding the bad boy players out there of, of sponsors that are doing There's something criminals, wrong. But right? Yeah, the criminals out there, obviously. But within the industry, 90% of it's going to come down to your use of debt. That comes from both the leverage that you're using as well as the debt maturity. I personally think it's really the debt maturity that gets most people in trouble because the shorter your debt maturity, the less you're able to withstand the market downturn. And that seems pretty intuitive, but if you look at the financial crisis, the markets that I've been in, which they are secondary markets mostly and primary markets. So we need to exclude some of the tertiary markets out there that probably are an exception to this. But in the financial crisis, across my portfolio at that time, rents came down by 4%, which most people are shocked about. They think the financial crisis rents came down, like property values came down 20 to 50%. And that just wasn't the case. So where people got in trouble is that what I refer to a lot, actually in our quarterly update, is liquidity in the market. Liquidity dried up in the market and cap rates increased. So when the cap rates increased, that also means that the value of those properties came down because there weren't as many buyers. Well, if you don't have to sell at that time, you're fine because your rents have only gone down 4%. So maybe your distributions are hit a little bit, but it's not material. It's the guys that need to either probably refinance their property because their debt's becoming due or they need to sell it. They can't refinance it now because liquidity is dried up and there's not the same debt options out there and they can't sell it now because the values are lower and their equity is lower as well. And knowing that's the thought process, what specifically do you do in terms of leverage and the length of loans that you put on your properties? Typically, the term that we like to put on our loans is somewhere between seven and 10 years. Even if it's a value add strategy, we prefer to not reduce our investment term but we might go with variable debt and a little bit higher leverage, but still pretty reasonable leverage. So our high leverage is probably typically around 70 to 75%. That's what we consider high leverage. It can go significantly higher. The bulk of our other investments, which we 
focus on more of a long-term strategy, seven to 10 years, more focus on cash flow. Our debt is typically around 60 to 65%. So because of that, our debt service is not too substantial. Mm-hmm. When rents go down, we're able to service it. And also if we need to refinance or loan at a later date, we're able to because we have a significant amount of equity from day one. Taking a step back, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? Best real estate investing advice ever is to be adaptive and look long-term. So markets continually change, no more so than today. Real estate is considered a slow-moving ship for most parts, but if you look at the market today, overnight the market has changed. And we've gone from extremely aggressive market to the opposite now. And it's important to take a step back, be reasonable with your assumptions, be conservative. And I wouldn't say put your foot on the brakes because I think now actually is probably better investment time than it was six months ago. And why do you say that? Well, if you look at the market, the fundamentals haven't really changed. The fundamentals in the apartment industry are really strong. Rent growth might come down from the extremely high levels that it was before, but that was unhealthy. It was unsustainable. So now rent growth is going to come down, but it's going to come down to a range that is historically still pretty strong. Occupancy is still very high. And depending on the market you're in, we're still undersupplied across most markets. But at the same time, liquidity has dried up. Liquidity has affected both the debt markets as well as the people looking to buy real estate. So prices have come down. So when I look at it, I can buy the same properties with the same strong fundamentals that were available three months ago at a price that's 10 to 20% lower than it was three months ago. That's a good opportunity. We try to take a contrarian view in a lot of what we do, and that goes to some of our markets too. But for the period of the second quarter of 2021 till about two months ago, we actually didn't buy a property for 12 months. And that was supposed to be a very rapidly growing time period for us as a new company. But we're uncomfortable with the prices, not the fundamentals, but the prices of the market. So we didn't buy a property for 12 months. And the last month we acquired two properties. We're gonna do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? I'm ready. All right. What's your favorite part of the business? The relationships. What's your least favorite part? The administrative work. Best ever way you like to give back to the community? Always looking to give back, whether it's my time or donations. Yesterday, I gave back to an organization that's called the Seven Day Hero. They are a humanitarian aid foundation where they give food resources and surgeries to third world countries. I think that's very important today. And that's just the most recent one. How can the best ever listeners learn more about what you're doing? Follow me on LinkedIn. I think that's the number one area where I'm spending most of my time. I make great relationships out there. I'm always available to connect with any of the listeners out there. Bobby, grateful for our conversation, talking through your career, a trajectory, grad school, no grad school, talking about office, retail, and ultimately focusing our time on multifamily, how to assess opportunities and assess operators from an LP's perspective and then flipping the table from a GP's perspective. Okay, now how do we develop those relationships with our prospective limited partners to gain that trust and to show our expertise? So thank you for the time today. Grateful and hope you have the best ever day. Talk to you again soon. Thank you. As a long time listener of the Best Ever Podcast, it's great to finally be a guest. Awesome.